But I want us to jump right into 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Um, this is part three, um, if you include the intro of the, of the series that we've just started a few weeks ago called I Am, We Are, and it's an identity about um, experiencing well-being as we discover our identity in Jesus. Uh, God wants to bless us. Jesus promised that if we would follow him, that if we would turn from our sin and, and other gods, false gods, as it were, and trust him and follow him, that he would give us new life, even abundant life. Um, what does that mean? How is that meant to, to, to look and, and feel? And that's what we've been exploring, and, and I've, I've made the point. My contention is that a big part of that life that Jesus has promised us is, is wrapped up in our identity. Uh, circumstances and, and things that we, that we do and places we go, that, that's all very significant and obviously a big part of our life. But at the end of the day, whatever's going on around us um, pales in comparison to what's happening inside. And I think that's where God really he specializes in giving us new life. He, he begins to transform us from the inside out it affects the way we think, feel, and act, and has everything to do with our identity. So that's what we're talking about. Let's go ahead and go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. I was so tempted to just read like the whole chapter because it's so good, but next time. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you did not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news, that is the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Isn't that incredible? I have to just insert this comment here. We're talking about things that angels angelic beings in heaven longed to peek into. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's just astounding to me. Things into which angels long to look. Can we go to the next slide, please? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, 
for I am holy. Last week we looked at First uh, John chapter four. He said concerning Jesus, as he is, so are we in this world. You want to know who you are? You want to you talk about identity, discovering who you are in Jesus? Um, I reckon all of us at some point uh, have probably thought, well, maybe if I just look inside hard enough and long enough, I'll discover who I really am. I don't know. I've done that, tried it. I've looked long and hard. Some good stuff and not so good stuff. The scriptures would encourage us to look to Jesus. You want to know who you're meant to be, how you're meant to experience life and relationship with your creator and those around you, with creation itself? Consider Jesus. As he is, so are we in this world. And if you go to the next slide, slide please. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy. And you can go to the next slide as well, please. That's what we're talking about today. Holiness. How do you feel about holiness? Anyone wake up this morning and think to yourself, I feel so holy. I feel so holy. Getting ready for church, putting on your Sunday blazer, looking in the mirror. I look holy. I feel holy. Gosh darn it, I'm going to church. I'd be holy today. Anyone actually feel that way? Marcos? A little bit? Mm, I don't know. Probably not, right? Pro- probably not. And if you did think that, well, you're, you're probably a lot less holy than perhaps you think. Holiness. Um, guys, we can't, we can't seriously explore biblically speaking, the subject of identity without getting pretty immediately into holiness. Holiness. God is holy. He commands us in his word to be holy as he is holy. And he doesn't just say act holy. Don't, don't, don't feel holy. Don't think holy. Don't just, he says be holy. Be holy for I am holy. What do you think of when you hear the word holy. I think, I'm I'm going to generalize here, but I think most of us probably just based on the fact that like holy is not really a word that gets used a whole lot in like popular English vernacular. um, When it does get used, it's probably something to do with like religious morality um, like, for example, if at work, you know, someone who you used to like party with, go out drinking with, whatever, I'm not saying us, like hypothetically speaking, uh, a friend then shows up one day and says, no thanks, I'm not going to go out drinking tonight and, and, and all that because I found religion, I got God or, or God got me. And you might think to yourself, oh, holy, huh? Holier than thou, are we? And there's a sort of conjures this idea of like, oh, so you, you're, you're more moral now. Is that the idea? That's, that's probably a fair, uh, I don't know, default mindset. Uh, Tim Mackey, I, I don't normally 
plug other preachers in my sermons, but if you've not ever listened to Tim Mackey, he's one of the founders of the Bible Project. He preached a phenomenal message when he was one of the preaching pastors at Door of Hope uh, several months ago on holiness. Um, we could probably just throw it on now and it would be way better than what I have to say, but nevertheless, here we go. Um, he talked about holiness this way. He, he lectures, he's one of my theology uh, professors at Western, and he talks about holiness. Uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word kadosh, and as I said, typically, I think when we use the word or think of the word in our, our modern context, we think of, yeah, it's, it's religious morality, which is a very small part of holiness as we find it applied or talked about in the scriptures. I want to take us on a bit of a, a whistle-stop tour through the Bible, looking at how the word holy is used and developed um, in the scriptures. Its very first mention in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. In fact, it's only used once in the entire book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. At the very end of the creation story, on the seventh day, it says God finished his work, saw that it was all good, and rested. And God called that day of rest holy. Isn't that interesting? It sets a precedent for how we're to think of holy in Scripture. He says this day, or rather this rest, shall be considered holy. That speaks volumes to me, because at the moment I do not feel at all rested. I'd like to think I'm well rested in Jesus. Physically, I'm just a complete contradiction. Um, we've been praying every morning at 6 a.m. as a church throughout the month of September, and I'm just so determined to be a part of that. I don't know if it's, it's a healthy determination, but I am determined nonetheless. And um, so I've been doing it, been getting up at 4.30 every morning, and, uh, and it's been amazing. But my, my problem is I didn't adjust my sleeping cycle. So I've been going to bed at the same time as my wife just like shakes her head, you know, the, the head shake of condemnation. Yes, it's true. But God says... To rest, and I would add, in him, is holy. It is holy, and that sets the precedent for how we're to begin to think of what is holiness in Scripture. Its second mention is in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 5. We talked about uh, Moses and the burning bush over the summer during our classics series. One of the stories we looked at was when Moses... Um, he's in exile. He had to flee Egypt because he was wanted for murder. And he was out in the desert for nearly 40 years, wandering around as a shepherd. And one day, he came across this really bizarre and curious phenomenon. There was a bush burning, which is slightly weird, but what was even more weird is that it wasn't being consumed. It was just burning. And God's attention, and as he approached the burning bush, he heard a voice. And God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's the second time holiness is mentioned. 
And it's not that God is holy. I mean, we'll, we'll get there. But it's that the ground is holy. There's something about this moment. There's something about he who's speaking and the effect that his voice, that his presence has on this physical place. There's something about the moment itself. It's holy ground. And God says, Moses, take your sandals off. Which is a curious thing. Um, I, you know, if you read some of the commentaries, there's, there's all sorts of interesting debate about the meaning of that. Like, why? Why take off your sandals? Some say, well, it's, it's probably to do with that, that ancient, even present day custom that some of us have when you enter someone's house, it's a sign of respect to take your shoes off. It's also just kind of like good cleanliness. Um, other commentators have made the argument, and I think these ideas are probably very much connected, but that because Moses was a shepherd, um, he would have had all sorts of stuff on the bottom of his sandals, like cheap poop and like smashed bugs and, and all just nastiness, like desert nastiness on the bottom of his shoe. And it would have been inappropriate. It would have been um, dishonoring to approach God in this holy place at this holy moment without removing. And, and of course, there was probably other quote-unquote unclean aspects of his being, of his body, but it was his sandals that were touching the ground. And so he takes off his sandals because the ground he's walking on is holy. Over 600 times after that, holiness is mentioned. It's most frequently used, the words most frequently used in the book of Leviticus, uh, primarily in reference to purity laws, various items associated with being clean or undefiled when interacting with God. For example, uh, the scriptures talk about holy garments, uh, the altar of sacrifice, which is holy, holy festivals, special days, holy sacrifices. Um, there's the holy place, the innermost region of the tabernacle. There is uh, the holy covenant, holy anointing oil, holy incense, various holy foods. The angels are always spoken of as holy. God's name is holy. Uh, the city, Jerusalem, is always referred to as holy. The prophets are holy, etc., etc. Um, God is finally talked about explicitly as holy when we finally get to the book of Isaiah. Holy, kadosh, is most frequently used in Leviticus. It's um, most frequently, secondly used in the book of Isaiah. I think this one may be on the screen. Yeah, let's look at this one a bit more closely. This is a vision that Isaiah, who's a prophet, mind you, um, who would have been considered holy as one of the prophets. He has this vision. And it's, 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 I love the way Tim Mackey describes it. It's like this psychedelic vision of the temple. So aspects of the temple were in this vision, but completely just like psychedelicized. That means anything to you. And sorry if that actually offends you, but um, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is his vision sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some of your translations will say, I am ruined, or I am undone. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Finally, God himself reveals himself to be the holy one. And what is Isaiah's response? Abject terror. In the presence of the Holy One, the prophet Isaiah falls on his face in abject terror and cries out, I'm ruined. I'm done for. I'm done. I'm lost. And the Holy One is felt in full force. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, you know, that famous 20th or 19th century British pastor. I went to his church one time in London. Did you ever make it there, my love? Big, big church building. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. I reckon that's what's happening to Isaiah. The holy prophet comes into the presence of the holy one and he is utterly undone. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, one of these like angelic creatures, which had to have been quite intense in of themselves. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, that is the holy altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. His unclean lips, and we don't have time to talk about the significance of lips and how it's, it's the lips that reveal the heart. But he takes this burning coal, he takes fire, the purifying flame of God, and he touches the lips of Isaiah. He burns his lips. Fire, purifying and atoning for this prophet, this man of God. <laughs> this, this is something that I would argue foreshadows uh, the nature of God more fully revealed in Jesus, which we're going to get to in just a moment. In the New Testament, uh, in the gospel, the synoptic gospel, specifically in reference to Jesus, the word holy comes up just three times. It's kind of a curious thing. You would think that when the Son of God enters on the scene, it would be nothing but talk of holy. 
but the gospel writers seem to want to, to be very um, specific in their reference to the Son of God and his holiness. The first time is in, uh, well, we can look at a couple of examples, but in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says, And the angel answered her, speaking to Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the first reference to Jesus being the Holy One is made by an angel as it was speaking to Mary. The second time we see Jesus referred to as holy in the scriptures is in Luke chapter four, verse 31 to 36. I think we have that one. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, um, which is the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha! What did you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done, done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, besides the angels sort of pre-birth prediction, the holiness of the son of God, this is the only other time anyone recognizes that Jesus is the holy one of God. And it's a demon in church. Super weird. Slightly disturbing. You ever wonder? Probably not. I have wondered to myself, do demons still like to attend church from time to time? So sorry if this freaks you out. My wife is like, don't, 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 don't go there. No, we must go there. We absolutely must go there. I remember, maybe you can help me remember his name. If you're listening to the recording, I keep talking to my wife because she's just right here. Shirley, what was the guy's name at our church in London who was kind of strung out on meth and he would come and he sort of had, I, I think he had Tourette's, but I honestly think, I think he was demon possessed. Nick, thank you. I could not remember. So Nick used to come to our church in London, and of course, we loved on him, we welcomed him, he was just, he was another, another person, another human being in London. Um, but he was clearly, uh, you know, I talked to him, got to know him, he was strong out on meth, and he was kind of homeless, kind of not, and in between different things, and he was part of our church for like a while. I, I gave him Shirley's guitar. I thought I was being a blessing. Shirley felt otherwise, I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> He was a musician. Um, he would sit, I would be preaching. Now imagine this, in our tiny little, little congregation, 
in London and uh, I would be preaching or trying and Nick would be sitting right there just dropping F-bombs like really loud just right in the middle of my sermon. Could you imagine? Just F, F, F. And you're like, at, at first I'm like, okay, my man has Tourette's. Like that's very unfortunate. Let's, you know, let's, kind of like, yeah, let's just kind of love on him. We'll figure this out. I don't know how we're going to figure this out. It's, but whatever, you know, we're not going to like kick him out. Like we're going to love on the dude. Eventually I became more and more convinced. Like I think there's something else going on here because it's, he only starts dropping the F-bomb. I noticed this. As soon as I said Jesus, F-bombs just began to drop. And I realized like, okay, I think maybe there's something going on here. Finally, one day, I mustered the courage just to like ask him. I said, Nick, I, I think I told him rather. I said, Nick, I think you have a demon living inside of you. And he got this big grin on his face and he said, I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think demons have no problem um, coming to church. I hope they don't. I'm, I'm not accusing anyone. Um, if you start dropping F-bombs during my sermon, like we, we might have a conversation. But I think they very much want to disrupt, distract, um, cause all sorts of havoc and chaos and fear. And that's what we see happening here. It's interesting though that um, Jesus seemed to have provoked something. Um, I think holiness Somehow everywhere Jesus went, everywhere the Holy One would go, demons seemed to react. Something about the, the presence of the Holy One. What should, should the pastor throw him out of church? Oh, did I throw him out of church? I did not throw him out of church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I did attempt to cast the demon out. I actually, because once we had the conversation and he kind of grinned at me and says, I know, I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what to do now, but like, here, here goes nothing. And so I'm like, hey, could we go downstairs? Like, I wanted to have, I'm like, would you, could we just have a private conversation? And all I know, like, I mean, you can read books on demonology and I have kind of have a problem with most of them because when you look at the scriptures, there's not like a real science about it. It's more of just like Jesus speaking to demons, come out, like authority, come out. The Holy One is here. You have no rights. Get out now. He doesn't kick the man out. He kicks the demon out. He looks through the person and he sees what's really going on. He addresses the evil and he demands it to come. And it's interesting that the demon, he knows exactly what's about to go down. He says, you're the holy one. Have you come here to destroy us? And Jesus, I'm sure, is like, "Mm mm-hmm. That's exactly what's about to go down. And he commands the demon to get out. Apparently he puts up kind of a fight, which sort of bothers me a little bit. But he didn't hurt the man. Put up a bit of a fight, came out, done. Don't know what happened after that. Okay, so I would say demons uh, do occasionally go to church. Um, in fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, he says that there will be some who have all the appearances of godliness 
And he lists off all these attributes, which would actually, in my opinion, make for like a really good Christian. They have all the appearances of godliness, but deny the power of God. So it's easy to put on the Sunday blazer and to talk the talk and walk the whatever, but God sees what's really going on inside. Demons recognize holiness. The Holy One, Jesus, destroys evil and delivers those who are held captive by the evil one. Isn't that beautiful? This this should bring us back to Isaiah. On one hand, the, the prophet Isaiah becomes so utterly aware of how unholy he is in the presence of pure holiness, so much so that he's just, he's undone. He's undone. And what does the Holy One do? He approaches and atones for his sin. That's, that's, I don't know what that is. That is, that's profound. It's beautiful. It's, it's slightly unfathomable. Our enemy is never flesh and blood. Let, let's, let's bring this back around to us. If this is the Holy One at work in the first century synagogue on the Sabbath, confronting evil, delivering the oppressed, and the scriptures tell us that we too are to be holy just as he is holy, just as Jesus is the Holy One, what does that mean about us and our identity and how we're to see ourselves and others and act? We too are to be holy. We too are called to confront evil and be the hands and feet of Jesus as we see those who are oppressed around us experience the deliverance of the Holy One. Our enemy is never Nick, ever. Our enemy is not the person who is in bondage to sin. People are never, ever our enemy, no matter how in bondage or culpable they are. Because let's face it, we're all relatively culpable in our sin. We make bad choices, and bad choices are made against us. But our enemy is never, ever flesh and blood, and yet we are called to do battle We are called to tear down strongholds and confront evil forces of wickedness and heavenly places and like Jesus, destroy evil. We we have been called ambassadors, citizens of the kingdom, entrusted with delegated authority to confront evil wherever we see it, only we do so with gentleness and respect always realizing that the person who may just be in bondage, even if it was their very, very, very bad choice, Jesus loves them and died for them, just as he died for us. I've never been possessed by a demon. Thank God. I think I have, I have certainly felt the influences of demons, particularly back when I was like sinning a lot, when I was practicing a lifestyle of sin. Oh, I, was, I was owned I don't, I don't know that I was possessed. I hope I wasn't. But I was certainly influenced. And then Jesus rescued me. And he's been rescuing me. 
because I still need it every day. Ephesians 4 says that we're not to give the enemy uh, a foothold. Some of our translations just say a, a place. Don't give the enemy a place in your life. The context there specifically do with anger and unforgiveness. You know, the enemy will try to find a, a leverage point. We'll try to find an area of our life that's not been submitted to Jesus an area of sin where we've not turned away and entrusted that area of our lives to our king, the enemy will see that sin in our lives and, and use it as a, as a foothold, like a rock climber trying to scale a cliff and hold on to that thing, leverage that thing to strip us of our delegated authority. You know why it's so important that we... Um, do we take holiness seriously? It's not so much, or if probably not at all, anything to do with like how we tend to like to feel um, personally pious. You know, like it feels good when you're doing good, and you can kind of like feel a bit proud of yourself. Like I'm doing really good at that. I haven't sinned in a whole week that I'm aware of. You can feel a bit pious. That's kind of nice, right? Um, I guess. But that's not the point. That's not the point. We, like Jesus, are called to love God and others. And the reason why it's so important that I take holiness seriously in my life, that I repent of sin when I do it, when I, I confess my sin to my wife and to others when I'm struggling in various ways is because I don't want to give the enemy a foothold in my life because I'm, I want to love people well. I want to be able to pray for people and, and see them delivered from demonic oppression because I want to love people. I want to see my family protected I want to see my children grow up in a home where the enemy has zero foothold. I want to be able to be strong in the power of his might. I want to be able to confront demons like Jesus and not cower or fear, feel fearful because I feel slightly in bondage to sin. Personal holiness has everything to do with my desire to love others well and not just feel a bit more holy than thou. Holiness. You know, it's funny, most of these words the Bible never actually defines. You just have to, have to just connect the dots and see how it's applied and see how it's used as an adjective. I would say it this way, holiness, the utter, utterly pure, whole, awesome, beautiful, good, weighty, powerful, overwhelming, terrifying, wonderful, indescribable, essence of God. He is the Holy One. When we enter into his presence, we should be overwhelmed by how holy he is. I've heard it described as like a, a, a holy moment, looking up at the stars 
and considering the vastness of the universe and in, all, in, a, in, a, in a split second feeling so small and insignificant and overwhelmed in the universe. I spent a bit of time out in deserts. I don't, I've never been in a desert like the Karoo out in South Africa and you can see so many, you see, you see nebulae in the sky and it's different on the other side of the planet. And, and you can almost see like the curvature of the Earth's atmosphere because there's so many stars in the sky. And for a moment, I think it's like a sliver of holiness. But then imagine like being transported up close to one of those stars. You would be incinerated in a, in a millisecond. You would be undone. And yet that same God who strikes abject terror in us little creatures is the same one who comes near and atones for us. He's the same God. That same power is the same God who entered into our mess as a child, as an infant. And that is holy. His power is holy. His authority is holy. His faithfulness and integrity is holy. His commitment to justice is holy. His love for the world is holy. His mercy towards the undeserving is holy. His hatred for evil is holy. His judgments are holy. God is holy. And because of his death on the cross, because of his atoning sacrifice, the Holy One has touched our lips and it's made us holy like him. Now we must learn to act like it. To confront evil where we see it that those who Jesus died for might also be delivered like us. The third time I mentioned, it's three times that holiness is mentioned um, in reference to Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. The third time um, is actually in John, not the Synoptics, but in John, uh, Peter. He declares that Jesus is the Holy One it's just after, I think it's John chapter six, where Jesus is talking about, uh, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. And everyone's freaking out. Like, what, is he, what is he on about? Like, what, is, what does that even mean? And he turns to his disciples and he says, Are, do you want to leave as well? Are you freaking out as well? And Peter turns to him and he says, where else, where are we to go? We've come to believe that you are the son of God. You are the holy one. 